seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you've left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard. In my office, tucked underneath a tall wooden wardrobe, there's a box of old notebooks. The earliest are frayed composition notebooks dating back to my junior year of high school, full of scribbled thoughts and my embarrassing attempts at writing rap lyrics. Moving forward in time, the notebooks become journals and diaries, some filled to the brim with doodles, rants, and personal analysis, while others were purchased for specific trips and only contain a scant few pages detailing my adventures abroad. They sit in their box, slowly fermenting, and every once in a blue moon I'll leaf through them, equal parts embarrassed and delighted as I read my old writing. For me, these journals are just remnants of who I once was. But for today's guest, journalist and author Malika Garib, her old journals are records ripe for revisitation. Malika is the author and illustrator of the graphic novels I Was There American Dream, winner of the 2020 Arab American Book Award, and It Won't Always Be Like This, her latest work. Both volumes are autobiographical explorations of Malika's upbringing, where she was raised in Los Angeles by her Filipino mother, but spent summers in Egypt with her Muslim father, reconstructed out of old diary entries, fuzzy memories, and conversations with the family members who were there, Malika examines her own past to better understand the unique mix of identities that made her who she is. And so for today's ritual, we'll take our own mix of emotions, memories, and self-reflections and throw them in the boiling cauldron of analysis as Malika teaches us how to draw connections. Hello, Malika. Hi, Devin. Welcome to Ritual Space. Thank you for having me. What is our magic word going to be today? Transfiguration. Transfiguration. Wonderful. On the count of three, everybody everywhere, say it with me. One, two, three. Transfiguration. Transfiguration. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Why transfiguration? Um, I went to Catholic school when I was a kid. And transfiguration was this concept of turning, I think, and please fact check me from what I remember. Never. It's a fact-free zone. Okay. You You can lie as much as you want. It was turning like the Eucharist into Jesus. That was transfiguration. Mm -hmm. You were taking um, this like cracker and you were basically then transforming it, transfiguring it into Mm -hmm. the body of Christ. And I think a lot about that in my own artwork, about how you're taking a memory um, or you're taking a concept and you're sort of retranslating it and reforming it and reinterpreting it into something else. Uh, Mm -hmm. Oftentimes I start an artwork with a feeling like uh, a crushing sense of loneliness, for example, but I don't want to say exactly what that thing, what, what is giving me that sense. Mm -hmm. So I will try to find another anecdote in my life 
another story and th- that gets at the same sentiment. Right. And I will tell that story instead as a conduit for the, for the original emotion. Ooh, I like that. It's like almost like you're, you're going to your painter's palette and you're like, okay, red, but I don't want to just use red. I want to find another color that links back to that same feeling of red and allows me to express it in a different, less literal way. Yes, exactly. Or sometimes I do it to protect my own feelings or protect, Mm -hmm. protect my own secrets. Um, And so I use other stories in lieu of, um, in lieu of the original story in order to process the emotion. So I'll process it with a different story rather than the original story, but the process is still done. I love that. I also, um, when you said transfiguration, the f- the first word that came to my mind was transmogrification, which I don't even know if it's a real a real word or not, but it's um, it's something that comes up in the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip where he has a box that he writes transmogrifier on, and then it becomes something that can transmute any one thing into something else. And so I think they like turn themselves into monsters and various things. Oh, that's really uh, cool. I, I, I feel like I've heard transmogrification in terms of like people who do like severe, not severe, but like um, extreme body mutilation um, to like, mm. you know, like they act like they cut their tongues and like, they right. add, yeah, those yeah. lots of tattoos on faces, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I guess it's all a way of transforming yourself and trying to express something. That's kind of the underlying theme. And so um, that's what I want to talk to you about today is you are using the amazing power of representational art to represent yourself and dig into your own life story and experience. So I guess if you could just start us off at the beginning, when did you start making autobiographical comics? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I was always a, I was always a serious diarist as a kid because I was mm-hmm. a loner, a bit of a loner. I felt like I could not relate to many of my peers um, because I was not the same race. I went to um, a predominantly Asian Catholic school, Filipino Catholic school, but I was half Filipino, half Egyptian, mm-hmm. which put me into sort of a different um, category. So I always had this like outsider syndrome. And then I felt fell into punk music and um, punk culture in high school, probably a continuation of feeling like an outsider and trying to find a sense of belonging within that crowd. But mm-hmm. throughout that time as a young person, I always did um, take to my diary as my only friend, I would say. Mm. And in my diary, it wasn't just so it wasn't just uh, entries. It was um, these doodles that would line the, the sides of the pages. Um, it was collages. I would like cut things out of magazines and kind of make my own, um, express myself through, you know, things that I would see in, in the, in the magazine and cut and paste there. And then, mm-hmm. and then I don't know how, but like maybe when I started hitting 15 and 16, I started drawing these little comics um, of myself and I, I had this recurring me who would like punctuate um, my diary entries with like how I, what I was really thinking and feeling like, like, Oh, this is so lame. I'm so bored. They're like, you know, get me out of here. And yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Right. Like Kathy. Right. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and so I, I didn't really take these doodles of me seriously until I, um, until my late twenties when I got my first book deal 
um, for a book called I Was There American Dream, uh, mm-hmm. which came out in 2019. And it was about my um, relationship to my Filipino Egyptian American identity when I was thinking about like the best way that I think that I express myself is through these little spot comics of, of me. Like mm-hmm. I, I say the truth most, most when it's little me sort of giving side comments and sort of narrating what's happening. Right. And so um, then very, very late in life uh, now, but now as I think when I started working on the book, I was 30. That's when I started to really uh, draw comics about myself. Yes. Okay. When did you graduate high school? In 2004. Okay. That's the exact same year that I graduated. And when I was reading uh, your book and you hit your teenage years and you start talking about punk music and the various things that you were into, I was like, oh, absolutely. Yep. (laughs) I I see my teenage self very, very clearly in this and felt um, quite a bit of rapport, which was really nice. Because, you know, your experience of of growing up uh, with summers in Egypt is not something that I experienced, but then it was interesting to see how that... um, particularly American time and place and musical culture was very uniting in, yeah. in that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you're talking about my <clears throat> my newest book, uh, It Won't Always Be Like This, which came out in September. And um, uh, I guess the gist of that book is that um, I, I recount my summers, my childhood summers in Cairo, I find out that my stepmom, my dad has married a, a new woman, a mm-hmm. woman, a, my stepmom. And I sort of have to uh, blend in with my new de- my dad's new life while also become a woman myself um, and form my own identity mm-hmm. in between these two cultures, American culture and Arab culture. Right. And I think what I, what I love so much about the work was that the experience of going there for summers creates these snapshots. It's this time out of the normal time. And since I hadn't read your first book, I didn't know the full background. So it was like, I'm just seeing the side quest of this, this character. And um, how many other um, Egyptian Filipino Americans have you met? A lot like, now, now that lot the now. books can come out. Um, <laughs> like they all seem to come out of the woodwork and there's so many everywhere. I mean, and they all have such different stories. Like I met a lot of Filipino Egyptians who lived, who grew up in the Arab world mm-hmm. and they, um, you know, some of them like really embrace their Arab side. Some of them like grew up in Filipino enclaves in the Middle yeah. East. A lot of them here in the U.S., like some people don't even know their Arab side. Some people only know their Arab side. So. Right. Uh, I find it really, really, really interesting that everybody has such a different experience. I grew up mostly with my mom, so I identify mm. more as Filipino, but um, it's uh, but not many people have had the experience of, of spending so much time in the Arab world. Um, mm. So that's always trippy for people, Egyptian Filipinos, when they're like, oh my God, you like literally been there like 20 times. And I'm like, yes, I have yeah. so many times. Yeah, I think that's what was so interesting was the. Uh, you have a side that is there, but then of course, when you're there, you're aware of how you don't fit into that culture either, that you have these American experiences and especially as, uh, for lack of a better term, like an alternative teenager, someone who's not just interested in Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys, 
like that's a niche interest. And then you're in this other culture where you're like, does anyone care about this cool music? And they're like, no, we don't. <laughs> yeah. And this was, this was like pre-internet time, right? Mm-hmm. So like early um, internet time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Early internet time when, you know, you have to go to an internet cafe and like dial up on the mm-hmm. modem and sign into AOL.com and see if anybody on your aim list was like awake. awake. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and so, you know, there were like music shops in Cairo, but like the Western music options were like very limited. So of course. around like 1999, it definitely was like the Backstreet Boys, uh, Britney Spears, mm-hmm. um, Ozone or oh, remember Ozone, like a lot of like European pop. I was going to say European pop stuff. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, exactly. And people were into like Pink, pa- not Pink Panther, Pink Floyd uh, um, as like, like there was, there was some like these like pockets of like, like strange like sub like rock subculture that seemed to break through but um but i wasn't into pink floyd okay i was like into sonic youth so i was like a very different (laughs) different kind of creature um yeah it was like um i was trying to get along i had to learn how to like basically um be connect with people in a way that that extended beyond pop culture that was Mm -hmm. very difficult because like as a young person, that's all you know how to do, right? Yeah, and I think it's um, it's a shorthand because when you like something kind of obscure like Sonic Youth and then you see somebody else wearing a Sonic Youth t-shirt, it is like a huge signal. And it's like, oh my God, this person likes this obscure thing that I like. And not every time, but a, like a lot of the time, if you go and hang out with that person, there's a lot of other stuff that you have in common. And it's like, you can just like kind of breathe and feel comfortable. Whereas I saw that very well represented of like the struggle of like, I'm trying to find common ground with these people. And it's, it's a narrow band of like the things that we share, which means that you're really not able to bring your full self out and you're feeling limited and feeling confused because this other person's into just a ton of stuff that you have no idea what it even is or yeah, absolutely. I think that with like, I mean, like starting with, there are many people, there are many people I needed to make relationships with as a young person um, mm-hmm. and that I had nothing in common with, but it was crucial to make relationships with them. One, my, my stepmother, Hala, mm-hmm. who is one of the stars in the book. And oh yeah, my, she's my, she's my new stepmom. And I had to sort of find a way to, um, she didn't speak English, did not, has no experience with American culture. I had very little experience with Arab culture too. Um, and we had to find a way to get along and find things to mm-hmm. do uh, to do together. My dad left me with her like all day, right? Basically. All day, yeah. Um, and how much Egyptian did you speak? Arabic, yeah. I, yeah, I, Arabic. I sorry. Very like, just like very convert, like very broken. Like, did you ever take Spanish in high school? Yes, I did. Okay, like you took maybe like three or four years, right? Mm-hmm. That's about how much Arabic I was able to speak. Yeah. I know where the bathroom is and that kind of thing. Yeah. Like get, bring the tea into the room or like, can you turn off the light? That, that type of thing. My experience with language acquisition is that at the beginning you learn these words and they almost feel like they're not real because you're used to English and it's just as like intuitive. You don't have to think about it. And then when you go into that foreign country and you're like, Oh my God, they really do say Banya. Like, (laughs) this is amazing. Like I have these magic passwords and it's so exciting. And then as you get deeper into it, it actually gets more frustrating because your language skills increase dramatically, but you want to be able to express 
subtle nuanced things that you have no vocabulary for and you're just like ah i could say it in english yeah absolutely and i think uh the good the good thing that during that time though is that like when you're a young person um especially with no distractions like the internet um you just learn to observe and watch and um you learn a lot through that way so Mm -hmm. i spend a lot of time like observing like what my stepmother was what what lit her up and what, mm-hmm. what she was interested in. And I tried to sort of like find common ground with that. So I learned that she loved to like sing and exercise and shop. And so those were like, and cook. And those were like mm-hmm. things that we could do together without much language. Right. Still enjoy each other, play games. Yeah. yeah. So revisiting um, now, you know, quite a bit of your experience growing up, what do you feel like you discovered through this alchemical transfiguration of turning memories and diary entries into drawings and stories? Yeah. Um, do you want me to just speak about the first book? I mean, they're the second I, either book. Either one. And either. Um, I'll talk about the second book since we're focusing on that. But like, I think when you spend two years reflecting on your life uh, and you have a central question, and my central question for this book was, um, for it won't always be like this was um, how did my summers in Egypt affect my worldview? I had never mm. really considered it or thought about it. I had never really reflected on it. I'm, I'm 36 now. Mm. Um, and I just sort of like grew up and that was it. I never like spent my childhood summers in Egypt. That was the thing that happened in my life. But like, <clears throat> what did that do for me personally? Mm-hmm. Uh, how did that contribute to my personality or characteristics? And I learned that uh, it made me very good at being like a chameleon and reading the room and sort mm-hmm. of being able to talk to anybody. I can talk to anybody. And I, I, I often don't really judge people too much. Like I just sort of have a lot of empathy for, for where a person might um, have grown up or where they come from. And I try to meet them halfway. And that's what I learned from writing this book is that I was able as a young person from my childhood summers to make these very deep and meaningful relationships with um, many family members and many people and many friends in Egypt, my stepmom, my siblings, um, without very much information, without a shared culture, without a shared language, without a shared um, religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a very important part of the cultural aspects in the Arab world. Yes. And I was able to still forge great connections with them. So much so that, um, you know, I always wondered in as a young person, like what will ever happen with my relationships with my siblings um, who I grew up with there, um, Salma, Dunya, and Ahmed. Mm-hmm. Freaking Dunya and Ahmed are coming to, to Nashville for Christmas in, you know, four days. Oh, that's awesome. So like, that's, that's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> like, you, just, you, just, you just keep on being, mm-hmm. um, you know, you keep on trying with people and eventually something will click and relationships will be created. Um, and I learned that about myself. I also learned um, in reflecting on this particular chapter of my childhood is that um, I had made a lot of assumptions about the Arab world, um, which was shocking because I'm Arab myself, but I'm Arab American. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of preconceived notions about what it means to be Arab American living in the post 9-11 era. Right. 
um, you know, living through an America that went through like the Gulf War, 9-11, and like, you know, the Trump administration with all these Mm -hmm. negative things about immigrants. And I had assumed that my stepmother would be um, wrongly, very, very wrongly assumed as a young person that my stepmother was trapped in this patriarchal society and she didn't have very much power. But ultimately, at the very end of the book, the reader will learn that she sort of pulls this ultimate flex of power and strength that is so inconceivable, um, not only in the Arab world, but also in the Western world. Mm-hmm. And she uh, makes a stand for herself that is just, um, to me, probably one of the most, the bravest and most courageous things I've ever witnessed from a woman in my life. Mm-hmm. And I learned all that. Um, I learned all that in reflecting on my time from my childhood. Well, and I think what stood out for me with that part was that the Arab world, it's like how people just say Africa. Africa is a continent. It is not a country. Like the Arab world is diverse. There's a variety of experiences across the Arab world. And it seemed like when um, your family moved from Cairo to, was it Dubai? Uh, To Doha and Qatar. And Doha and Qatar, that that was hard for your stepmother because she had had more of a connection with Egypt and there was like, it seemed like more restrictions there. And that kind of led to that pressure, which then led to her leaving and and, and setting out to do her own more empowered thing, which was really cool. Have you spoken with her since the, uh, the book came out? Yeah. Um, actually, um, I worked with her on the book. I, um, hired my brother Ahmed, I paid him $25 a chapter to Mm -hmm. basically translate everything for Hala because I I wanted her to like, I didn't want this to be a Google translate thing where I'd be like, Hey Hala, like, I know I haven't talked to you in 10 years, but like I'm planning to write a book about you that will be everywhere um, Mm -hmm. about you and dad. That's going to be about your divorce. I know that you and dad really don't talk to each other. And like, we haven't spoken in 10 years, but like it may be on the bookshelves of Barnes and Nobles, like, (laughs) like nationwide. (laughs) Yeah. And like, so, you know, that's not really a a conversation you can have like um, over Facebook messenger. You know what I mean? Like you really need to like, um, you really need to like let that person, you need to like, you need to like talk to that person, get a translator and like make sure they Mm -hmm. understand the stakes. Mm -hmm. Um, So I basically like wrote the manuscript and sent it to Hala and my dad and had them approve the manuscript before I signed the contract. Cause I was like, you know, a lot yeah. of this is about you guys and I love my family more than I love my art. So, mm-hmm. um, I will not do anything with this book unless you approve, approve it. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like, yeah, we love it. So go for it. Wow. Uh, which was really shocking, but, but, but I will, will say that it was a lot of work. Like every chapter, it was like a back and forth with them. Like I would give them, as I was working on the manuscript, I would give them a chapter I'd give them a grace period of like when they could like give me feedback and then they'd give me feedback and I would incorporate it in. Like there were things that they mm. didn't want to be included um, and things that they corrected me on. I basically mm. treated it like journalism where I would triangulate facts um, or I would fact check their memories with my own memories, um, my diary entries from that time. And mm. I would ask them for dates and specifics. And I think that they, I actually think that they really got into the swing of things. Like after the third chapter, they were like, Ooh, like 
Like, are we yeah. still going to, are we going to work on the project this week or what? They got into it. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I think even in just regular conversation, like I'll see friends from high school and they'll be like, oh, remember this time? And I'm like, I do not. <laughs> Everybody else has a clear memory of something that I did. And I'm like, I don't remember that at all. And then other times where I'm talking with my dad and we're like, oh, we have very different understandings of like what this event was or when it happened. So yeah. to be producing a document, you you don't just let, you know, oh, all right, I guess <laughs> different I ways. You're like, we got to dig a little deeper and see what what actually is going to be the represented truth. Yes, exactly. I think that, that I have been very comfortable in this idea of uh, the agreed upon truth. Mm -hmm. Like um, my dad, there's one scene where my dad pinches my sister Selma mm -hmm. and Selma like texted me and she was like laughing when she read that scene. She was yeah. like, you and I both know that dad smacked us. <laughs> and I was like, I know, I know that he smacked you during that time, but like, I couldn't have you have, dad didn't want me to say that he smacked us. So like we settled on a pinch and that is our agreed upon version of the truth. And you, you do know I'm recording right now. Yeah, no, no, I know. I, I, know, I know. They know this, they know this story. Yeah. <laughs> so like, like it's very common to be like, people kids like immigrant kids get smacked around a lot um yeah so that, i mean that's like pretty common um it's horrible you should not do it but like it happened no and there's i mean i think there is a difference between that and like prolonged physical abuse that is a more like what you see in a like hallmark movie of someone staggering <laughs> around and like beating the kid with a lamp cord Oh God. Yeah. Well, yeah, I don't know. But, um, so, so agreed upon version of the truth that we were like, all right, fine. You want me to pinch it? Like put a pinch, we'll put the pinch in. It's fine. Yeah. And so for you, did, was there anything that you had had one version that you had been going along thinking this was the way it was? And then through the excavation realized that your version was actually quite distorted. Um, yeah, I think that, um, the main distortion was like realizing how unfair throughout my childhood, how unfair it was that I had to go to, to be dragged to Egypt, this horrible place, boring mm. with no internet and no friends and nobody who speaks English yeah. year after year. And I was like, why do I have to do this? This is so lame. Like I'd rather be home, like hanging out with my friends. I'd never spent like 4th of July with any of my friends. Uh, why do I have to do this? And as I was writing, I realized that like, you know, my dad was trying really hard to incorporate me into his new family life, really, yeah. really freaking hard. And he did not have to do any of the things that he did. He did not have to, all the work that my stepmom had to do to like accommodate me, another person in the house, mm -hmm. like four kids. Mm -hmm. I mean, like another mouth to feed, like just like three months. That's a long time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they did all of this because they wanted me to be part of their lives. Mm -hmm. That's, that's huge. I mean, and seeing that as an adult that, you know, it makes, it made me cry, you know, like to think about like, this was the best they could do to try to make me feel included. And um, I think they did a good job. As I said, Dunia and Ahmed will be here for Christmas. So where does still... your family live now? Are they in Egypt or in Qatar? Um, so my dad and Hala live in Cairo and um, Selma does. But do not, do not hang out. 
they don't hang out. They're divorced. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and Selma's in Cairo and um, Ahmed is here in the U.S. He's studying in Iowa um, at Iowa State. And my sister Donia moved here in 2021 to try out her luck in the, in the big United States of America and just nice. see what it's like. And she's yeah. doing real good. She's like living in L.A. She's on her own. She's independent. She's got her own car. I think nice. she went to like she's found her Arab friends that she like parties with. So she's, she's good. So when was the last time that you were in Egypt? I was in Egypt in 2017 with Darren Vandergriff, my husband okay, and um, a couple of my American friends. Um, and we went on this incredible, we took the, an overnight train to Luxor and Aswan and then took a Nile river cruise up the Nile and like stopped um in, and then got to see like the Valley of the Tombs and like all these like pretty cool old stuff. Nice. <laughs> on the way. It was really magical actually. And so what was that like now that you didn't have your snotty teenage attitude and you were revisiting um, through your own desire rather than feeling compelled and forced? Um, that's, that's a really great question. I think that like, Egypt is so cool. Like it's like very cool to be associated it's like an honor to be associated with that country. Like, mm-hmm. I, I know that sounds like so glib now, but like, like I was like looking around like the Valley of the Kings and I was like, damn, this is great. You know what I mean? Like I was like showing it off to my friends. I was like, oh, look at this, Claire, Becky. Like, yeah. look at this, this is all me. It's all me right here. You well, know what I mean? But I, think, I think it's something, I, I might be getting this wrong, but I think like from where we are now in time to Cleopatra is to what Cleopatra was to like the building of the great pyramids. Like it's the same amount of years. And so like when we think about ancient Egypt, like they were also like, there was ancient Egyptian archeologists that were already like digging up oh, and exploring. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, whoa, so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like who built these pyramids? <laughs> it's like we did. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. But I, yeah, I felt like I had an overwhelming sense of pride and like, um, and also like Egypt is modernizing so quickly. Like, um, my brother, it like what started college a few years ago, uh, in the U S and I was like, like, do you know anything about American culture? And he was like, Oh man, I already know how to play like flip cup. And like, I know to wear plaid and jeans, like that are kind <laughs> of like tight. Cause that's what you all wear. So like, I've yeah. been watching YouTube videos about it and I was like, Oh my God. Wow, crazy. Yeah. Globalization. They, globalization. Like um my sister and my brother, they they like want to do like very American Christmas things when they're here. Mm-hmm. Um, but their idea of like American Christmas is like so strange. It's like, okay, like we want to watch Harry Potter movies and drink butterbeer. And I'm like, that's not really like a Christmas thing, but if you want to do that, that's fine. Like that's what you yeah. think Christmas is. Like, <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's what a wizard Christmas is. <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the things is that American culture is so centered around alcohol that that's one of the things that's fascinating about the Arab world is that it has a very, very different relationship with that. And I remember um, uh, my fiance and your friend, Lisa Ann, uh, had a poetry thing in New York that was for some like Arab American group. And it was at a hookah bar mm. up in Queens and it was this whole row that was just all hookah clubs like all up and down yeah. and it was like so fascinating because it was like oh it's like a nightclub except 
different because you have people walking around with towering things of hot coals. So like it's not as crowded or you have to be more careful and people aren't getting wasted. It's like people are hanging out and smoking hookah and talking with their friends and drinking tea. And it's like, you still, you still want to go out. You still want to like socialize and vibe, but just so interesting to see a world with alcohol removed from the equation like that. Yeah. Well, also in the Arab world too, it's a very, very social culture and and Mm -hmm. like hobbies are actually discouraged because like the fact that I was like always writing in my journal, like was really, really concerning to my dad. Cause mm-hmm. I was solitary. Like, why aren't you like going and like making friends and like talking yeah. to people and playing games with people and doing stuff with other people. Like you're always in your room and stuff. It was kind of like trippy because like in the Arab world, like people like love to like, like once 9, 9 PM hits prime time, let's go out yep. to the hookah bar, mm-hmm. get that hookah, get the cards out, we're playing cards. Uh, and we will sit there until like three in the morning. And yep. that is like, that is fun. And it is fun, actually. And, you know, I think, I mean, there's definitely versions of white American culture that get this. But I remember having this experience of seeing, um, like, I don't know, sitting through a lot of really tepid, like, settlers of Catan nights. I like Catan, but, you know, everyone being very serious and, like, focused on the game. And I'm just like, oh, this is so boring. Mm -hmm. And then um, going over to a black friend's apartment and they're just, like, playing cards and talking shit. And it was like, oh, the card game is a vehicle for like gossip and chatter and jokes and all of the other things, no one's really like, I mean, like you're competitive because you want to talk shit about winning, but like, it's not the same. And I think a lot of other cultures get that of like, let's play dominoes or cards or whatever and Mahjong. And like, we're just going to just like gamble and chat endlessly. And And eat and like, like take a break and like, you know, gossip and yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Oh man. Um, yeah, I grew up around um, in, in Southern California, and we had this area called Brookhurst Avenue, which is now called Little Arabia. But um, me and my Arab cousins who live in California, too, would like, when we missed, well, actually, we didn't do it just when we missed Egypt, but we would go out and to the hookah bars there and just like hang out and do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a vibe. It's a vibe. <laughs> so, with um with these books, you write a manuscript where you kind of figure out how you're going to tell the story. And as you're doing the manuscript, are you figuring out the visual elements then? Or is there another phase of transfiguration where it becomes um, colors and images? Yeah, no, I never, um, I never, well, for the first book, I definitely did the comic first. But for the second book, I realized that like the big mistake, one of the frustrating things that I had when I um, was working on the first book was that I had no idea what I was saying. I I was like drawing Mm -hmm. everything. It was so much work. And so I thought this time around, I'm going to write what I want to say first and then worry about the interpreting it into comic later. Right. Easier to erase lines of text than 12 pages of drawings. And you're like, oh, this isn't the story I want to tell. (laughs) That's exactly the thing. So I was like, let me just like figure out what I want to say first. And, um, so what I, I did was there's no special way that I interpret text into comic. The only thing that I do is that I do it so fast. I like think about what is visual that I can express with a drawing. What is a dialogue that I need to have? And what is the least amount of narration I need, um, Mm -hmm. to sort of tell a story? Do I even need narration? Can I just like... Can we just like yeah. get the story moving along with just illustrations? That's basically the the com like what I the formula. 
so like the freedom through constraint of instead of you know it was a dark and stormy night and i've got to win john to like set the scene you're like well if i draw a dark and stormy night then we're already there yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. and then there's a gunshot and then okay yeah yeah like yeah. off to the races like sounds can like dialogue sounds can like do a lot of the heavy lifting facial expressions like i can just sort of erase all that that's my favorite part now from these two processes being different, do you feel like when you were drawing that that allowed the uh, Malika character, that voice that was appearing in your diaries, to come into it earlier and more strongly versus when you were translating from what you'd already written? Or when you were translating, did that voice come back in as well? Um, that's a really good question. Honestly, I feel like writing the manuscript first, um, well... It's hard to say. I mean, this book tonally is like so different from the first book. This book is like very much like I'm telling you a, a story mm -hmm. uh, about these people and me. And the first book was very much like, here's my diary and I'm crazy. And like, here's all my feelings and thoughts. Ah! Like, so it was like a bit all over the place. This one was like, like very restrained, I would say mm. more tonally okay. restrained. Got it. So let's shift gears and start talking about uh, our spell. Okay. Today. Yeah. So what, um, cause I know you also, you make uh, little mini comics, you've done zines for a long time. And so I'm curious, um, maybe even going back to that emotional bit we started with, um, what's a little something that the listeners at home can do to bring a bit of your magic into their lives? Okay. Yeah. I think that you should think about a memory and then try to spend one minute writing about the feeling that you experienced in that memory without actually saying the original memory. Mm, okay. So you take a moment and you think about a memory Let's maybe make this a little cathartic. So like, let's, okay. you know, maybe, maybe it's a memory that's going to be bothering you. Okay. And then, so then are you just describing like, I feel sad, blah, 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 or you're trying to express it in some different way? Yes. You're going to sort of, well, you, know, you can express it any way you want. You can, writing is easiest, but try to tell another story that gets at the emotion of Got the it. first story without saying what the first story is. Got it. This reminds me a little bit of a writing exercise um, that we did over the summer at this writing retreat. I'm trying to remember it now, but it's like, it's like a guy is walking home and sees a barn on fire. And then there's like several different prompts of what happened before that you're trying to convey without describing it. So it's like he's walking home from the hospital and it's just like seeing the birth of his son or he's like just watched his father die or whatever. And like, how does that color the experience of watching this barn burn? And how do you express his state without being like he was walking home from seeing his dad die? So you're trying to just take that emotional charge and then recreate it using different puzzle pieces. Yes. Okay. And then what? And then that's it. That's and then you're and then you're healed and your life is better forever. Congratulations, everyone. Yeah. Then you process it through through the process of transfiguration. You have processed your feelings in some way. You should learn something about something. I often find when I do these types of exercises in my own work mm -hmm. that it illuminates something about the first story that I didn't see before by looking at yeah. it in a different way. 
I think that's wonderful. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people miss about the creative process is I think there's the assumption that you're like, all right, crack my knuckles, get my pens and pencils out, time to sit down and just start panel one and just draw comic moving forward. When actually most artists and writers I talk to have pretty interesting like rituals and kind of witchy practices to like dig into their ideas and to force themselves to stretch and find not the first answer, but the the deeper, richer, more complicated ones. So that's really wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Malika. Thank you so much for having me. What can we expect uh, from you in the future? Um, let's see. Um, Baby Gus, which is okay. he's coming February 6th. Um, Congratulations. And more comics. Thank you. More comics and more mini zines, I guess. That's like really one trick pony. Do you have a, <laughs> do you have like another big comic or are you going to take a little breather and just kind of let that go? I think I'm going to take a little breather and like, let that go for a while and see like what other creative things I'm poking around with and thinking about. Yeah. There's only so much you want to squeeze out of your diaries. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think, well, let me say this. I think I'm done thinking about the past and I'm like ready to think about the future. Mm. Um, I think that like, you know, being in your mid thirties, you start to realize that like you spent so much time in your childhood, like, like thinking about when I grow up, I'm going to be, X, Y, and Z. And then you grow up and you're X, Y, and Z. And you're like, all right, well, what about the rest of your life? That's why I decided to become a wizard. Because I was like, wizards are old. <laughs> so I'm not going to have that. Well, now what? I'm like, yeah, I'll just, I'll just, I will only reach peak wizardry, like right before I die. Just like the actor that played the yeah. first Dumbledore. <laughs> Daniel be like, a, I've, I've been a wizard for three decades or 10 decades or whatever. Three centuries. Three centuries. Exactly. Yeah. Got an early start. <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Malika. Thank you. For more of Malika's magic, visit malikagarib.com or check out her two graphic novels, I Was There American Dream and It Won't Always Be Like This, wherever you buy books. And for more of the very special magic of this podcast as a ritual, you can go to patreon.com slash this podcast as a ritual, where you can join our Patreon, which means you're a participant in the ritual, which means you're helping this magic work its magic in the world, making the world a slightly better place. And it definitely makes my life slightly better because then I can eat food. So check out my magic, check out Malika's magic, but don't forget to dive deep into yourself and rediscover your own magic because I'm a wizard and I'm telling you right now, I believe in you. Your magic is real.